Uh, my name is Tyler Green. I'm one of the pastors here at Emmaus. And if you're a guest with us today, if you're newer to Emmaus, I just want to welcome you and let you know that we are so glad that you are here. I do have a couple of announcements uh, for today. Uh, the first announcement is that next Sunday, February 25th, one of our very own covenant members, Jesse Masson, will be teaching a class for the Emmaus Institute. Uh, the subject of the class will be grief. What is grief? Why do we experience grief? And what the intended purpose of grief is for our lives. Uh, those are some of the things that Jesse will be covering. The class starts at 8.45 a.m. And even if you miss Jesse's first class, like he, he began teaching on grief this past Sunday, uh, even if you miss that, this is still for you. This is still something that you will get a lot out of even if you miss the first session with Jesse. So by all means, please come to that class if you want to grow in your faith, if you want to grow in your relationship with God, especially as it pertains to the subject of grief, then that class is for you. Uh, for our second announcement, I'm going to bring up Hannah Schreiner. Uh, Hannah leads our women's ministry here at Emmaus, and she's got some information about an upcoming event or some upcoming events. Yeah. Yep. Hi guys, um, like Tyler said, I'm Hannah, and I want to let you guys know about our spring women's Bible study. So the church just finished going through the book of Habakkuk, and we are going to circle back through it one more time, um, but in small groups. So this is going to be a little bit different. In the past, we've done like 10 weeks, 12 week studies. This is a little bit more accessible. It's a three-week study. We're going to be doing it through the month of March. Um, there is four weeks in the month of March, but one of those will probably be probably be, I can't talk, your spring break if you have kids. So we are doing three weeks in there, um, and we need some sign-ups, or there are sign-ups. You need to sign up by the end of this week so that we can get you plugged into the right group. Um, this is the book that we're going to be using. It's called Trembling Faith by Taylor Turkington. Um, it's divided into three sections. It's a great book. Um, yeah, so if you get the weekly emails from Emmaus, there's a link in there that you can sign up, choose your time that you would like to participate. We are having each individual, um, individual purchase their own material in the past. Um, you've paid the church and then we've bought all of the material this time you're on your own, you're buying it. So find your local bookstore, go to Amazon, visit Midwestern's bookstore, whatever you want to do, buy this book. It'll hopefully bless you. So thanks. Thank you, Hannah. If you have questions, email me at women at EmmausKC.com. Thank you so much, Hannah. Yeah. Uh, ladies, be sure uh, to get that book. I use that quite a bit in my preparation for sermons for Habakkuk, and it's a great book. It's a great resource. So uh, be sure to get your hands on that book. We'll turn with me once again to the book of 2 Timothy. We'll be back in 2 Timothy chapter 1 this morning. If you remember, last week we looked at the first seven verses of this chapter, chapter one, and both today and next week we'll look at the remainder of this chapter. Today's sermon will actually be sort of a part one of a two-part sermon. But to get us started, uh, I want to read uh, the full text that we're going to be looking at today and next week. It's verses eight through 18. So 2 Timothy chapter one verses 8 through 18. The Apostle Paul writes, starting in verse 8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, 
but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. This is the word of the Lord. The bride of Jesus Christ is no stranger to suffering. Just like her bridegroom during his earthly life, the church is a magnet for persecution, opposition, hostility, and attack. And listen, it's always been this way. At no point in time have the people of God enjoyed a persecution-free existence. I mean, just think of some of the names down through church history, some of the examples of those who have suffered boldly for the sake of the gospel. Not long after 2 Timothy was written, an early Christian bishop by the name of Ignatius of Antioch wrote these words in a letter to some believers in Rome. He said, allow fire and the cross. Allow crowds of wild beasts. Allow tearings and breakings and dislocations of bones. Allow the cutting off of limbs. Allow the shatterings of this bodily frame. Allow all the dreadful torments of the devil to assault me. Allow all these things. Only let me be with Jesus Christ. Those are the words of a man who knew that suffering was not only possible, but suffering was imminent. Speaking of imminent suffering, another example that comes to mind is a man named Polycarp, who died as a Christian martyr in the first century. The story goes that he was marched before the Roman proconsul who told him, Reproach the name of Christ and I will set you free. And Polycarp famously said these words in response. He said, 
to the proconsul, these 86 years I have served the Lord, and he has never once done me wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And for that, Polycarp was burned alive. Or what about the years of the Protestant Reformation? During this time, Luther lived most of his life as a wanted man, and Zwingli was executed by Roman Catholic soldiers. Then there's John Wesley and George Whitfield, who often preached the gospel while being jeered at and threatened by angry mobs. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was killed by a Nazi firing squad. So you see, again and again and again throughout history, God's people have shared in the sufferings of Jesus. But it's not just the church of the distant past. This is also the case for the church in the present. There are Christians all over the globe who are being persecuted even as we speak. In places like China, Iran, Nigeria, and North Korea. In countries like these, persecution for the faith is a daily reality. This is why Jesus tells us to count the cost of following him. Because make no mistake, to be a follower of Christ is to open up your life to the very real possibility of having to suffer for the sake of the gospel. And so it's worth asking ourselves today, should the time come for us to suffer, are we willing? Are we willing? That is a cost that we must count. And no one knew that cost better than the Apostle Paul. In fact, Paul describes his sufferings for Christ in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, I've experienced imprisonments, countless beatings. I've been near death. Paul says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashings. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. And Paul just goes on and on like that for several verses. I think it was Bonhoeffer who once said that suffering is the badge of discipleship. Well, if that's true, then I imagine Paul is a sort of overachieving Boy Scout who's covered head to toe in badges. I mean, you think of everything that Paul went through, everything he endured, all those excruciating events, all those horrific experiences, and it makes you think, this guy deserves to retire, right? Give the, give the man a nice pension. Plop him down on a beach somewhere with a pina colada and let him live the rest of his days in peace. But that's not how it ended for Paul. Remember, this letter that we're looking at it's the last piece of writing we have from him. And it was sent from a Roman prison where Paul is essentially on death row. He's, he's awaiting his own execution. And he's there not because he's committed some evil deed. Paul is no criminal. No, Paul is an apostle who has spent years bearing witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet as Paul has preached the gospel and ministered to countless people, he has experienced suffering time and time again. He suffered even to the very end 
of his days. And he alludes to this. Starting in verse 8. Where Paul is taking what he has learned from his years of ministering in the midst of persecution. And he is sharing it with Timothy. He's imparting it to Timothy because he knows what is ahead for Timothy. More opposition awaits. More persecution is going to come. It's not going to slow down anytime soon. And Timothy is not going to be able to avoid it. No, just like Paul, his mentor, Timothy will have to suffer. And so Paul wants him to know one thing. And that one thing happens to be our big idea for this week and next week. Here it is. Since everything we need is found in the gospel, we can boldly share in suffering for the name of Jesus. That's what's really at the heart of this text. Paul begins in verse 8 by giving to Timothy the central imperative, the, the primary command of this passage. Share in suffering. Share in suffering. Now, it's easy for an audience like this to hear that and to think, well, you know, I get that Paul was suffering, and I, I get that Jesus and the apostles had a lot to say about this particular subject, but are you forgetting where we live? I mean, this is the United States of America. We have religious freedom. We have a constitutional right to worship according to the dictates of our conscience. So how can this possibly be relevant to us, to people like us? Well, there are two ways that I believe it's relevant. Let me just say a couple of things about what this means for us as 21st century Americans. The first thing I want to say is that we are commanded by Scripture to willingly associate with those who are suffering for the gospel around the world. This is why Paul says to Timothy, don't, don't be ashamed of me. Don't be ashamed of my chains. This is why the book of Hebrews in chapter 13 says, remember those who are in prison as though you are in prison with them. Remember those who are mistreated for the faith. Don't forget about them since you are in one body with them. Now that verse right there, that points to one of the most fundamental truths about our identity as Christians. That we are one in Christ with other believers, which means that we are one in Christ with those who are suffering for the gospel. When one part of his body is afflicted by persecution, the whole body is afflicted. And so as Christians, far from being ashamed, we need to gladly identify with those who suffer. After all, Jesus does. He identifies with them. That's a lesson that Paul learned the moment that he met Jesus. In Acts chapter 9, Jesus came to Paul on the road to Damascus. The glory of Christ appeared before him and knocked him off of his feet. And what is the first thing that Jesus said to him? Jesus asked him a question. Why are you persecuting me? Not why are you persecuting my people? Why are you persecuting me? And so this much is clear that one of the ways 
We share in suffering is by identifying with those who suffer. We do this by praying for them, advocating for them. We give money and resources to ministries that support them and serve them. When we have a chance, we visit them because in Christ we are united to them in their suffering. Just like we are united to Jesus Christ in his sufferings on the cross. We are one body with them and Jesus is the living head of us all. So that's the the first thing I want to say. The second thing is we need to be so filled with the power of the living God. And so filled with affection for his gospel that when suffering comes... We are ready. Friends, we don't know what the future holds. There are no guarantees that the America we've always known will be the America of the future. We don't know what the world will be like in 10, 20, 30 years. I mean, you look back at where things were in our culture 30 years ago and you realize things have changed an awful lot. So who knows? What other changes are up ahead? Who knows what other changes are on the horizon? And if there is suffering in our future, we should not be caught completely off guard by it. This is what 1 Peter 4, verse 12 tells us. We should not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes, as though something strange were happening to us. What Peter is telling us is that as Christians, we should be ready. And listen, not ready in the sense that we're dreading the future, that like we're, we're wringing our hands or, or gritting our teeth and waiting for the very worst to happen. Peter is talking about being ready in the sense that we are treasuring the gospel. We need to be ready in the sense that we are depending upon the power of our God each and every day so that when trials come, when sufferings come, our hope and our joy are rooted in Jesus, not in our circumstances. Which is why looking at this text, what I want to do is I want to give you four truths about the gospel that will sustain joy, confidence, and hope for all who share I'll give you two of these truths this week, and then we'll look at the second two next week. In verse 9, we find the first truth about the gospel. It's the truth of the gospel's predestining grace. Look at what Paul says. God has saved us. God has called us to a holy calling. But then Paul makes sure we know something else. He wants us to know that our salvation, our holy calling, these things are not because of our works, but rather they are according to God's purpose and grace, which he gave to us in Christ Jesus. When? Before the ages began. So what Paul is getting at there is he's saying if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, your salvation did not begin the moment that you believed in Christ for the first time. Right? It did not start with your conversion. Your salvation did not begin in Genesis chapter 3 where the fall of humanity took place. And God promised to send a savior who would rescue the world. That promise is glorious. But your salvation did not originate at that point either. Because you see the gospel of of grace is not some divine contingency plan. 
It's not as if God made the world hoping it would all work out only to find that things fell apart. Things went off the rails. And so God, he, he enacted the gospel of grace to put things back on track. God's trying to stuff that genie back in the bottle. No, that's not what this is. That's, that's not what happened. Instead, the gospel of grace is God's plan A. That's what, that's what Paul is saying here, that the purpose and grace of the Lord our God was determined before the ages began. Listen to what it says in Ephesians chapter 1. In an outburst of Trinitarian praise and worship, Paul exclaims, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with Christ. He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now listen, even as he chose us in Christ before the foundation, of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him. Paul goes on. He says, in love, God predestined us for adoption. He predestined us for adoption unto himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Emmaus, that's where it all began. That's where it all started. Your salvation by grace predates time and history. It predates this planet upon which we live. It predates a universe that people will tell you is billions and billions and billions of years old. Christian, your salvation, your holy calling is from before all of that. It's from before the ages began. Think of what this means. Before you ever did anything right or wrong, good or bad, before you ever succeeded or failed at anything in your life, before your first cry of infancy pierced the air, before the first time you drew breath into your lungs, before all of that, God set his saving love upon you. He looked down through the corridors of history and he saw you from a distance and he said, that one is mine. That's the word that God spoke over your life before your life was even a thing. And listen, let's be clear about something. God chose you. God chose me. But it's not because of anything that we're bringing to the table. That's why Paul says that we're not saved and called according to our works. There are some who will read a passage like this and say, well, yes, that's true. God saved us before the foundation of the world. But he did that because he looked ahead into the future and he saw that we would choose him. So he, cho he chose us on the basis of our future choosing of him. Now listen, there are many, many Christians that I love and respect and admire who take that view. But I believe they're wrong. I believe they are mistaken about how this works. Because look, Paul makes it clear. We're not chosen because of anything we do. It's not according to our works. It's not because we made the right decision. It's not conditioned by some future choice on our part that we just happened to make. It's not owing to us at all. That's what makes it not just grace, but as Paul said, glorious grace. 
I don't know about you, but the most glorious grace that I can possibly imagine is a grace that is completely and totally unconditional. Our salvation has to be a unilateral act of the living God. It must be a decision made firmly on his part. If it's anything other than that, let me just be the first to say, we're in big trouble. Big trouble. Because remember what the Bible tells us. It tells us that we were dead in our sin. Dead. Paul says precisely this in Ephesians chapter 2. He tells us, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our bodies and our depraved minds. We were like, we were children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, like the rest of humanity. None of us has ever seen a corpse decide to revive itself and get up out of a casket. I've never seen that. You've never seen that. And that's the point that Paul is, is making here. The dead cannot make themselves alive. They cannot rescue themselves from their lifeless condition. They cannot decide to be anything other than dead. And it's the same for every person apart from Christ. We were dead in our sin. Meaning that it was impossible for us to muster any signs of life that would make God want to look our way. No, we are born in sin. And those who are born in sin are no better off than a corpse. It takes a sheer life-giving act of grace. Purposed by the triune God before the foundation of the world. To awaken us from our sinful state. And to make us alive in Christ. So if you're a Christian, that's your story. That is your testimony that you are chosen from before the foundation of the world in love. God predestined you to be saved by grace and called to a holy, set apart calling. And listen, that's what Paul, that, that, that is what Paul is meditating on in his suffering. That's what he's dwelling on as he is suffering for the sake of the gospel. Which to me is highly instructive. Because it shows that this doctrine of God's predestining grace. It's not just some heady intellectual exercise. We often treat it that way. Right? As if it is a subject for debate between Christians who just so happen to be really smart. Listen, it's so much more than that. So much more. I mean, this is a, a doctrine that was holding Paul together in the midst of the most severe persecution. This is a truth that comforted his soul as he was rotting away in some prison cell. Because listen, Paul knew something. He knew that you can oppose a Christian. You can take his livelihood. You can take his quality of life. You can beat his body. You can lock him away. You can even kill him. You can take his life. But there is one thing you cannot do to a Christian. You cannot change who and what he most 
fundamentally is. Because a Christian is saved. A Christian is called. A Christian is adopted by God. And no matter how harshly you persecute that Christian, you cannot unsave him. You cannot uncall him. You cannot unadopt him. Because that is a decision that has already been made. It was made long before any of us were here. And it will remain long after we're gone. That decision is from everlasting to everlasting because it is from God. It is the grace of God the Father purchased for us in Christ the Son and applied to us by the powerful working of God the Holy Spirit. So that's the first truth about the gospel. It's the truth of God's predestining grace for his people. The second truth is that the gospel is historically manifested. Just look look at what else Paul says, starting in verse 10. He says that our salvation was given to us in Christ before the ages began. That's verse 9. And in verse 10, he tells us, it has now been manifested through the appearing of the Savior, Christ Jesus. So we've seen how your salvation originated from before the world's founding. It was before all time. However, the grace of God also appeared in time so that the salvation of God would be brought to you and me. This is what Paul tells us also in the book of Titus, chapter 2, verse 11. He says, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation. And how is it that this grace appeared? Well, we know it appeared to us in a person. It appeared in the man, Jesus of Nazareth, in his advent, in his earthly life. So the God who predestined us to be saved is also the God who came down to us and who took unto himself our human nature. So that in Christ Jesus, you have one person in whom are united two distinct natures. He is truly human and truly divine. He is both true God and true man. The word who is with God and who is God, that word became flesh and he dwelled among us. Here at Emmaus, this is a truth that we hold very dear. We return to it time and time again, not because we're presuming that we can fully comprehend it somehow, but we return to it over and over because it goes to the very heart of the gospel that we declare and display. This is why one of the things we do so often when we gather as a church is we say the Nicene Creed together because the Nicene Creed gives us a chance to confess what is true about Jesus. It says that he is God from God, light From light, he is true God from true God. Yet, for us and for our salvation, what did he do? He came down from heaven. The grace of God appeared and became human. That's what the creed tells us. And in verse 10, Paul tells us why. He tells us that the Son of God appeared in history. He became human for two reasons. He became human to abolish death 
and to bring life and immortality to light through the gospel. So if there's one thing that is constant, unavoidable throughout the history of the world, it's death. That's why we often talk about death and taxes, right? Because the, the taxes part, that's kind of a joke. I mean, you should pay your taxes, okay? You need to pay them. But that's kind of a joke, right? Because, like, the taxes part, that's kind of real. But the death part, that's very real. Right? That, that, that is a very real thing. The number one inescapable fact of human existence is death. You, you can't get around it. Right? Everybody dies. Every last one of us will have our expired decaying bodies put into a box. Your family will gather around you, and they'll, they'll gather around the box, and they'll throw dirt on it. And then they'll all go back to the church fellowship hall and eat macaroni salad. That's just how it is in a fallen world. I'm talking about death and macaroni salad. <laughs> Stuff's gross. <laughs> Sorry if you like it or if your grandma has a recipe or something. But it's true. Death, that's how it is. It's unavoidable. It's inescapable. And this was the reality that Paul was confronting face to face. He was on the threshold of death. He's there in prison waiting to die. And yet here in verse 10, what do we see him doing? We see him staring death straight in the eye. And he says to death, Christ has abolished you. This sounds a lot like what Paul says elsewhere. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, Death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? You have been swallowed whole by the victory of my Lord. So just notice how even as the stench of death is wafting through Paul's prison cell, you can tell he's not afraid. Right? He, he, he's not scared to die. He is not troubled by what is looming ahead of him because he knows there is a reality that is more inevitable than death. And that reality can only be realized through the gospel of grace, which tells us that there is a man who was crucified. He died on a cross. He was buried in a tomb. And for three days, his body was left there to rot. But on the third day, at the break of dawn, the ground began to shake. And that stone was rolled back. And that man stepped out of his tomb. He came back to life. He achieved immortality. And he brought that life, that immortality, he brought it to light. Through the gospel. So that the world may see and believe what is true about Jesus Christ. That he is the risen, reigning king of kings and lord of lords. Friends, that's the gospel of grace. That Christ died in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried, but then he was raised in accordance with scriptures. And as we sang about this morning, with him, with Jesus, we too will be raised. That's why Paul is so resolute in the face of death. He knows that death is a comma, not a period. For us as the servants of the Lord, death does not get the final word. How does the Nicene Creed end? How does it conclude? 
It concludes with a statement about the bright future that awaits us in Christ. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead. We look forward to life in the world that is to come. For the church, that's the final word. Right? That, that's the period at the end of the sentence. Eternal life. Immortality. That has been brought to light through the gospel of grace. But the last few days that Kansas City has had, I can't think of a reminder that's more timely, more needed. On Wednesday of this past week, sin and death were on full display in our city. As Pastor Kirk alluded to in his prayer, lives were significantly harmed. And one precious life made in the image of God was brutally taken. We mourn over that. We weep with those. We grieve what happened. At the same time, we do not grieve as those who are without hope. Because of what we know and believe. That there is life. And there is immortality. And this life, this immortality is found nowhere else but in Jesus. And in a way, that brings me full circle back to, to what I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon. As we began, I told you that there is a cost to following Jesus. And each and every one of us must count that cost. We must, we must carefully weigh it. Of course, when you think of a cost, you realize that, yes, there is something you must give up. There is something you must lay down, but also you know that whatever you're giving up, it's worth it. You're willing to pay whatever the cost requires because you know that there is something much greater coming to you. And the promise of the gospel is that there is nothing greater than life with Jesus. So even as you lose your life, even as you enter into suffering, when you've given up everything to follow him, you know that what you get in return is infinitely greater than anything you have lost because you get Jesus. You get him. And so along with Paul, and Polycarp, Luther, Wesley, and Bonhoeffer, along with any Christian who has ever suffered for the sake of the gospel, we can say these words. We can mean them. I count everything as loss. For the all-surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake, I will suffer the loss of anything and everything. And I will even count what I have lost as rubbish. But if only I may gain him and be found in Jesus. Remember, friends, because everything we will ever need is found in the gospel of grace, we can boldly share and suffer for the name that is above every name. You pray with me. God, once more we pray for our city. We pray for those who were injured. That you would grant them healing. 
We pray for those who suffered the loss of a loved one. You would comfort them with your grace. We pray for the multitudes who are troubled by what has taken place. We pray that this tragedy would be used for your purposes as a way of prompting people to consider the deeper questions of life. Tragedy has a way of sobering us to see that in and of ourselves, we don't have answers to the world's greatest needs. But Lord, you do. You have the answer. And so we ask that you would use this to cause many people to come to the end of themselves to embrace the truth of who you are and what you've done. God, I pray for us as a church that we would not be afraid of suffering, that we would not fear death. Lord, make us boldly faithful to the truth of the gospel. Make us relentlessly confident in the power of the gospel. And as we look to Christ revealed in the scriptures, Lord, make us fall more deeply in love with the Lord of the gospel. In his name we pray these things.